Hey, good morning, church. I want to welcome everyone watching online as well as in-house and extend a hearty, happy Mother's Day to all of our moms. Can we give our moms a hand? Come on, guys. A little more than that. Awesome. Moms, we've got some uh, free caffeine for you just down the road, a mile down the road on your left at Farmhouse. Bob and his team do an awesome job. I hope that you'd stop there uh, after service on your way out. Uh, my wife and I, Crystal, uh, my wife Crystal and I, I'm not my wife, that's weird. My wife Crystal and I uh, announced a few weeks that we're expecting a baby, and yesterday we found out that we're going to have a little baby boy. And we're, yeah, we're excited about that. He's going to be the, uh, the next Johnny Bench of my Cincinnati Reds in my retirement plan, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, either way, we're just happy so far that the baby's healthy and excited to see and discover with him, how God's wired him and his personality and temperament, and to see what he's going to enjoy uh, growing up. Today, we are closing out our five-week teaching series uh, called Grace Changes Everything. And we've talked about um, how the law does not really help us. It actually exposes us uh, and calls us out for what we are. We can't be good enough. We can't be bad enough to receive grace, to get into heaven, as some would say. And so we need grace in our lives. And we've talked about how sin uh, is a double curse in that we are guilty of our sin. And the sentence is life without the possibility of parole or life uh, apart from God for eternity. Uh, and we're also dominated by the power of our sin. But grace is a double cure in that Jesus is our justification, that on the cross, theologically, one of the things that he's doing is he's serving that life sentence apart from God on our behalf. And we are justified by grace, and we are also sanctified by grace in that Jesus says, before I leave, talking to the disciples at the end of the Gospel of John, uh, I'm, my, my Father is going to give you the Holy Spirit, who basically is going to come alongside of you and sort of be like your defense attorney, someone to walk along the life, the road with you. And so we don't have to listen to hallmark sentiments anymore about following our hearts, trusting our feelings and our gut. Uh, we can actually follow the Holy Spirit that Jesus himself said would lead us into all truth, whether that's difficult truth to swallow or truth that really encourages us and comforts us uh, in our faith journey. And today I want to close the series by talking about uh, this idea of grace and baptism. And before I do that, uh, for the last time, uh, I have not forgotten, I want our church to say out loud at home, uh, in the car, hopefully you're not driving, uh, as well as in-house, Romans 6.14 together as a faith community. This is the big idea of our entire series, and I would argue even the Christian life. So let's say it together, church. Ready? For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. All right, one more time. We have a bunch of fill in the blanks because I like to antagonize you, all right? I think you guys are going to crush it. Here we go. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. See, I only had to look at my paper once. I've got my own cheat sheet. And I highlight all the slides in orange because I'm getting older and it's easier for me to find the words uh, as well. We are not under the law. We are not under trying to be good enough, even though that is a narrative that many people, religious or not, try to live up to. Good enough for uh, their bosses to promote them, their parents to love them, friends to accept them. But Christians are not in the business of worrying about being good enough. We're in the business about resting in the sacrifice of Christ, who was good enough for us. 
And today I'm going to close out by talking about a topic that uh, has divided the church, created different denominations, different theological perspectives. So it should be a lot of fun. I want to talk about how baptism is integrated in the gospel response in the New Testament. Now, I'm going to talk about the, um, the breadth or the width of baptism uh, because I don't have the, the time to talk about the depth of baptism. I don't have time to take one or two verses and dig really deep. So what I chose to do is um, sort of talk about a ton of New Testament texts uh, that, that help us know how to respond to the gospel when we hear it preached and we want to make a decision. Acts is a very a critical book in the New Testament. It is the first book and only book, really, where you see a Christian sermon preached, hopefully like the one you're hearing now, um, in 2021. And at the end of the sermon, people have an opportunity to respond. And so we get historical data that shows us, like, after someone heard a Christian sermon, like, how did they become a Christian? Like, that's great. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. What do I do now? And Acts lays out a specific pattern that helps us to show how to, how to accept grace and how to begin our journey with Jesus. And it begins in Acts chapter 2. I tell you to pull out your Bibles or your smartphones, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive it like a rental. We've got, we're going to go through the entire book of Acts and look at almost every encounter uh, to show and establish a pattern of how people respond to the gospel. And the first sermon ever given, Christian sermon ever given is by Peter, one of Jesus' disciples in Acts chapter 2. And this is in part at the end of a sermon, this is what he says to the thousands of Israelites who have gathered together. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. But when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Love what you're telling me. How do I receive it? How do I respond? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God recall. It's for everybody. It's not just for the Jews. Now it's for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's for anybody that wants to respond to the gospel. Um, I don't know that you think about preaching. If you do, I'm impressed. Uh, but a lot of people think that preaching is a monologue. You listen to somebody talk for 25, 30 minutes. Okay, it's me, 37 minutes. Hopefully it's not boring. Either way, you're going to grab lunch. Life is good, right? But it's not a monologue. It's a dialogue that Luke, who wrote Acts, and as well as the Gospel of Luke, said when people were listening to Peter, they were, the phrases cut to the heart. When you read the phrase, um, cut to the heart, you need to think of like two burly lumberjack dudes who have one of those big long saws and they're cutting through some wood and they're going back and forth and back and forth till finally the blade gets all the way to the bottom of the wood and it splits in half. This is what happens when gospel preaching takes place in a church, in an assembly, at a large gathering or event. When people are listening with an open heart, the Holy Spirit is moving back and forth and back and forth, uh, cutting the heart in two, breaking the heart so that the heart might respond to the gospel. And this just depends on your willingness to lean in and, and be aware of what's going on in your life and the possibility that God wants to give you 
grace. And thousands of people were baptized that day. And the book of Acts is also important, not because it has the first Christian sermon, but it gives us a pattern. It gives us um, a narrative to know how to respond if we are convicted of our sin and want to become Christians. And what I would like to do is walk us through um, all, if not most, of the conversion uh, narratives that happen in the book of Acts. Now, in your Bible study, there's this uh, idea called the principle of first mention. What does that mean? Well, when you're looking for like a theological idea, a concept, a phrase, or a theology of whatever, uh, you want to look at where it's first mentioned and dive really deep into where it's first mentioned. And for us in baptism in the book of Acts, it's in chapter two. It's this collision of the Old Testament and the New Testament where Peter has said, for years and years and years, the prophets and prophetess have told you the Messiah is coming and you ran from God and you ran from God and God chased you and chased you. And then he came in the form of a human and you crucified him. And people, of course, were cut to the heart and they wanted to respond to the gospel and receive the grace of God. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 37. But in Acts chapter 8, we meet uh, Philip, a disciple of Jesus, meets an Ethiopian eunuch. And this is what Luke writes. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. <laughs> what, what could stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then Philip and the eunuch went down to the water, and Philip baptized him. Now, how did this Ethiopian eunuch know that water is connected to baptism, which is connected to responding to the gospel? Because before this little section of scripture, this eunuch was in his chariot reading the Old Testament, a section actually out of the book of Isaiah, and he had no idea what he was reading. Right? You've probably been there. I've been there, right? Uh, at a young age, I've been there. I'm like, I don't want to read the Old Testament. It's scary and boring, and I don't understand it. Hopefully, this happens to you, that you're sharing your faith, and somebody that is interested in Christ or just generally inquisitive about the Bible says, hey, I've been reading something in my devotionals on my Bible app, and I just don't get what, what does this mean? Can you help me out? And Phil said, sure. What you're reading uh, is called a prophecy that this, Isaiah is writing about the Messiah, that when he comes, he will die on a cross and rise again three days later. And, and the eunuch goes, oh, cool. So now that he's done that, how do I receive grace? And Philip said, believe, repent of your sin, and be baptized. Even though that phrase isn't in there, we can assume through all the other stories that we're going to read that that is the normative set in Scripture for to respond to the gospel. In Acts chapter 9, we read about Saul's conversion. If you don't know who Saul is, Saul, for a living, killed Christians. Like, that was his job, because Judaism does not allow for a trinity. In Genesis, Moses writes that God is hakad. It's the Hebrew word for one. And so God would never become a human, but the word one in Genesis is actually, uh, uh, is actually plural. In the first couple of chapters of Genesis, is beautiful Hebrew poetry. And Saul gets converted, changes his name to Paul, plants churches throughout Europe, and writes a third of the New Testament. And this is part of his experience. In verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in the vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. 
because uh, you always talk to God in your dreams, right? The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas and Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit immediately. That adverb immediately, you're going to see a lot throughout Acts. Immediately, something like scales fell off of Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. Immediately, he was baptized after taking some food and regained his strength. The gospel begins to break um, uh, uh, ethnic and, and um, racial barriers uh, in the first century. Peter watches Cornelius get saved and respond to the gospel. Again, Peter has a dream, and, and God says, I need you to go to Cornelius' house and share the gospel with him. And Peter calls what we would call a, a, the equivalent of a racial slur. He calls Cornelius unclean because Cornelius is a Gentile. And Jews and Gentiles, they don't really hang out. But Jesus, in his gracious patience, <laughs> doesn't slap Peter upside the head, but invites Peter to go to Cornelius and expands his worldview. And in chapter 10, verse 47, Peter says, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then he asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is when Peter, for the first time, realizes the gospel is not dependent on the color of your skin or the area code in which you were born in. The gospel is for everybody. And there's part of... Um, Part of what Israel had a problem with, with the gospel and grace, is, is, is this idea that we're from this country, we're from Israel, and if you're not from Israel, God doesn't love you. And we've, what you learn in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God doesn't love zip codes and countries, he loves people. And Peter is realizing this maybe for the first time, and it changes his life forever. In chapter 16 of Acts, the gospel is now breaking economical barriers. Lydia and her family is baptized. Luke's, or Luke, uh, Luke wrote Acts. Acts 16, 13, Luke writes, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place for prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. Maybe you remember that city from our Revelation series. Her name was Lydia, a dealer in purple dye. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of the household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Lydia would have been like the modern day Barbara Cohen on Shark Tank. I love that show. Lydia was an entrepreneur, an independent businesswoman, a creator and seller of purple dye. She was so wealthy that a lot of Paul's missionary journeys were funded by her business, her Etsy shop, right? And so the gospel is penetrating the elite of the first century and the middle class. If you keep reading in Acts chapter 16, there's a middle class family that gets saved and is baptized. The jailer's family 
who was baptized. Paul and Silas were singing in the prison, and the, the prison collapses, and something terrible happens to the jailer. In verse 27, Luke writes, the jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword. He's about to kill himself, because under Roman law in the first century, you have one job. If the guys behind the bars get out, you're dead. So he was prepared to die. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called out for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. He shared his faith, all the others in the house. At that hour, the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, there's that word again, he and all of his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his entire household. Rabbis were getting saved and being baptized. Acts chapter 18, verse 7, Paul left the synagogue and went to next door to the house of Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. And Crispus, sort of like Brian, our worship pastor, the synagogue leader, uh, the guy that puts together the, the flow of the service, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were being saved. So the gospel is penetrating um, ethnic backgrounds, economical backgrounds, and religious backgrounds. Jews are now getting saved. That's a big deal in the first century because they had no framework of God actually becoming like one of us. <clears throat> and Paul and his, and his entourage are even baptizing other disciples. Acts 19, when Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized or when you believed? No, we've not heard of the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? So Paul asked, well, what baptism did you receive? Well, John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people, believe in the one coming after him. That's, that's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus immediately. And then at the end of Acts in chapter 2, we read again of Paul's conversion. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law. He really knew the scriptures. Highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, Jesus, and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and the Lord spoke to me. Quick, get up, leave Jerusalem immediately because, people, because the people there will not accept your testimony. They're getting ready to kill him. So what is, hello, welcome, I'm looking up again. What do we take away from the book of Acts in responding to the Christian gospel? Well, when we, when we look at the book of Acts, we can take away a few things from conversion encounters. Number one, there is always repentance of sin. There is always a confession that Jesus is God who died for our sins and rose again three days later. And immediately, immediately after those, there is an immediate baptism for the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Luke lays that out clearly for us. Now, I have friends that are pastors. 
um, in, in different job titles because they're in different denominations. Um, we, we see this differently. But one of the reasons why I love being in a non-denominational denomination, this is always funny to say, is that our creed is Christ and we're committed to the text. Where I have other friends that work for um, hierarchical denominations where sometimes they're, they have to teach not what they believe or necessarily what the scriptures teach, but what the denomination says they have to teach. And if you just look at the New Testament, at least for me, it's pretty clear to see that to receive the gospel, to receive the grace of God, there is repentance happening, there's a belief in Jesus, and there's an immediate baptism that is taking place. Now, this was the practice of the early church for the first 12 to 1500 years until a Switzerland theologian, he's got a really cool name, by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, and in 1523, he basically rejected the New Testament version of baptism. Now, we did not translate the word baptism uh, into the English. We transliterated the word. Uh, baptism in Greek is baptizo or baptizo, however you want to say it, depending on what part of the country you're from. If we were to translate baptism into English, we would use words like immerse, dip, or dunk, or submerge someone or something underwater. Maybe you did this to your siblings trying to dunk them uh, in the summer at the pool. And Zwingli comes on the scene and says, everybody before me, which you know he's telling the truth then, right? Everybody before me was wrong. All the early church fathers were wrong. All the writers of the New Testament were wrong. And he actually wrote this. In this matter of baptism, if I may be pardoned for saying it, I can only conclude that all the doctors have been in error from the time of the apostles. Everybody's wrong, right? You trust that guy at work when he says everybody's wrong. Everybody's wrong. All the doctors have ascribed the water to the water a power which does not have the holy apostles. Uh, hold on, let me say that again. All the apostles have ascribed to a water to the water a power which it does not have, and the and the holy apostles did not teach, right? This is easygoing. This is a common belief. To say that you are a Christian in the first century was synonymous with saying that I have been baptized until guys like Zwingli come on the scene and say, wait a minute, there is water baptism, but baptism largely is more of a symbolic theological statement. Now, one of the things that Zwingli did for theology, this is important, so hang with me, okay? Lunch is coming in seven minutes and 20 seconds, I promise. What that matters is, is because from this, we get covenant theology. Now, again, I've got friends in every denomination. Uh, my wife has been a graphic designer in a lot of different churches, a lot of different denominations, okay? They're, all my friends are going to die. That sounds morbid, but they're all going to go to heaven, okay? They're all Christians. I'm just interested not in what a denomination tells me I have to say. I'm more interested in what the scriptures have to say, and I'm trying to do this as humbly as I can. And covenant theology basically says there's one covenant from Genesis to Revelation. And if the Israelite boys had to be circumcised in covenant theology, this would be, um, uh, if you grew up in a Presbyterian church, you probably heard some form of this teaching. We have to baptize uh, infants. Uh, 20 years, um, a guy comes on the scene uh, with Zwingli. He's about 20, 25-ish years younger than Zwingli. His name is John Calvin. 
And he's sort of the father of modern Calvinism. Or if you've heard of Reformed theology, if you've spoken to someone and said, I'm Reformed, well, it comes from this guy mainly, John Calvin. And one of his contributions to Calvinism is this theological concept called original sin. Meaning, when you have a baby, which is weird to think because my wife is pregnant, when you have a baby and give birth to your child, they are literally born in sin. So what happens if that baby dies? That's why denominations practice baptism, infant baptism for salvation. We don't believe that at RCC. And for my Reformed friends, and we don't do infant baptism, we do parent dedication, and we don't do baby dedication, we do parent dedication because parents are dedicating their parenting to raise their child up so that child can one day decide for themselves to follow Jesus or to walk away from Jesus. Ultimately, it's their decision. And what I respect about my Reformed friends is that they're honest with their theology. And I said, what happens if that baby is aborted or is a miscarriage or dies a couple weeks after the mom gives birth? And, and, and they stay true to their theology. Well, they say, honestly, Ben, it's up to the sovereignty of God. We would trust that that baby would be in heaven. And I just go, for me, like, and I have a lot of good Reformed friends. I have Reformed friends that go here to RCC. I just, I just can't, I can't go there. I cannot connect the dots. And there's two reasons why churches practice infant baptism, largely from the 1500s. Baptism, or the baby is sinful, which is to speak about original sin, and the baby has inherited Adam's sin and needs to be baptized the same way Old Testament babies were circumcised, that should be circumcised and not baptized, to identify with God's people. So if you grew up in like a Catholic church, a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, you probably saw infant baptism. Many of you grew up in the Catholic church and were baptized as babies. And what we say at RCC is like, fine, like your parents were doing the best that they could. Religion is overwhelming. If we're being honest, it can be intimidating. And no, no parent wants to mess up their parenting and, you know, disappoint the Lord, right? So yeah, I'll, I'll let my baby get baptized. Here's the issue with it, my friends. There is no precedent in the New Testament for infant baptism. They're not from Genesis to Revelation, and definitely not in the book of Acts, which is the only book at large where you can hear a Christian message like you would at a church and respond to the gospel. It's just not there. And so what happens is denominations attach themselves to theologies, and they have to uphold the theology, which, fine, I, I get that, I can respect that, but it's not in the New Testament, you know what else is not in the New Testament as we talk about baptism? The other thing that's not in the New Testament are people, and, and I, I've known people my whole life. I've worked in churches, or I've heard this even before uh, I was a pastor, and I've, I've heard it at RCC too. Well, I gave my life to Christ when I was like 15, 16 at some camp, and um, I've been following Jesus ever since. Oh, and I, and I go, when have you been baptized? Were you baptized? No, I've never been baptized. And at this point, this person is 60, 65, 70, 55, and they've never been baptized. In the same way, um, I'm trying to be as sensitive as pastoral as I possibly can, because I know baptism is a very personal thing, right? In the same way that infant baptism does not exist in the New Testament, 
What also doesn't exist in the New Testament, and there's no framework, and it would be very confusing to Paul and the first century disciples, is that you never see somebody giving their life to Christ and waiting three decades to get baptized. Every faith encounter, every conversion experience, we read it. That's why I wanted to read. I know it was probably cumbersome maybe for some. I wanted to read almost every uh, uh, conversion story so that you could see when people were cut to the heart, they repented, they believed, they confessed, and they were immediately baptized. I'm not saying that you're right or wrong for you know putting your baptism three decades on hold. I'm just encouraging you to be baptized. Why put it off any longer when the precedent by the guys that followed Jesus, walked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, saw him sleep, saw Jesus have good days and bad days, came out saying, if you want to receive grace, repent, confess, believe, and be baptized. In the same way that infant baptism doesn't, there's no precedent in the New Testament, there's no precedent for somebody that gave their life to Christ when they're 15 or 20 and then waited to be baptized, if ever, 40 years down the road. You know, that was part of my wife's journey, right? She grew up loving God, didn't have a problem with God or the concept of God. She, uh, this is how old school we are. There's actually a bus ministry that picked her up to go to church. And as she was growing up, she kept hearing more and more sermons. And she, she would tell you that she loved God and she believed God. And I believe that if she died, she would have gone to heaven. But nobody ever told her about baptism until she was in her teenage years and college years. And she started going to a Christian church. And the pastor, Dee Dee Bacon, did a sermon like this about baptism. And she goes, oh, I need to do that. I, why would I put that off? I'm going to do that immediately. For that, that's normative. That's the imperative. And I get it. I get it. Some of you have gone to different denominations, and maybe there's this like fallout of, like, did my parents lie to me? No, they didn't lie to you. They're just trying to do the best that they knew how to do. However, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, Baptism is always received immediately after someone comes to realization that they don't have to be good enough, they don't have to be bad enough, that God loves them through the person of Christ, and they can receive that gift. So what does the New Testament say about baptism? Remember, I'm doing the breadth, not the depth of it. And so I'm, I'm rounding third here, I'm finishing the sermon. It just depends on how you want me to talk about baptism. If you want me to talk about baptism as an action, an action verb, something you do, well, here's what the New Testament has to say. Baptism is an establishment or an ownership relationship with God. It's part of our salvation. It's part of forgiveness of sin and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's part of putting um, to death our sin and identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We talked about that like two weeks ago. And it's a union with Christ and putting on Christ. If you'd like to look these scriptures up later, don't freak out. Come meet me in the lobby. I'd be happy to email you my sermon. Uh, so if we're talking about baptism as just an idea, like a noun, well, baptism is a burial and it's a resurrection as well as a salvation. In 1 Peter 3.12, Peter says it's, a, it's an appeal to God for a clear and clean conscience. You know, um, a lot of my Baptist and Reformed friends would say that uh, for someone to receive Christ, they just have to say like the sinner's prayer, God, forgive me of my sin. Uh, I want to be a Jesus follower. Then they're, then they're saved. Again, the issue with that is, um, and I love my friends, but the issue with that is that's not a precedent in the New Testament. If anything, baptism would be the sinner's prayer. It's an appeal to God for a clean and clear conscience. Thirdly and finally, 
if we're talking about baptism as being washed or a washing, the Bible has a lot to say about that. It's a sanctification and a justification. It's a regeneration and a renewing. It's a sanctification and a cleansing. And it's also a new birth. So let me, church, close out by just stealing what the writers of Acts and the disciples of Acts have said. If you have not been baptized and you want to follow Jesus, man, let's do it today. You can text the word towards to the 10-digit number on the screen. I'll be in the lobby if you don't want to do the texting thing and you'd like to have a personal conversation. I'd love to talk to you. If you're someone that's been following Jesus longer than I've been alive and you've never been baptized, why in the world would you wait one more day? Text the word tour to the 10-digit number on the screen or meet me in the back in the lobby uh, at the hub. I would love to speak to you. Every faith encounter in the book of Acts, as well as I can see it, is a call to repentance, a belief, a confession, and a baptism for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. This, friends, is why grace is so amazing. And let me pray as we close out our series today. God, thanks so much for the gift of grace. Thank you for a book like Acts that gives us a normative pattern of what we have to do or, or not have to do, but how we respond to the gospel message. I thank you, God, that even as you're laying out the Bible, you don't really leave anything up to question. You give us a pattern. And Lord, I, I pray that uh, if folks here uh, on campus and online have been cut to the heart by your spirit, that they would make that decision to be baptized whether, they've, whether they haven't been and something they've been thinking about for three decades, or maybe for the first time they want to follow you and be baptized, Lord, I pray that they would do that today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.